1: Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Tonight, we ask if an Irish COVID inquiry will be a political pantomime or a necessary next step.
2: We see what was done well and we bank that and we embed it and we remember it for the next pandemic because pandemics will come again. But then we also look at other areas in which things could have been done better.
1: As sales of electric vehicles rev up, we debate whether they are worth an investment. And nearly 11 years since the shooting of Riva Steam camp in South Africa. Oscar Pistorius will be released on parole tomorrow. From revealing WhatsApp messages to shocking statements from former cabinet members, the ongoing UK COVID inquiry has gripped the public and press alike. But the terms of an Irish inquiry into our own response to the pandemic are expected to be before cabinet shortly. But what questions should be asked, and will it descend into political mudslinging? Well, here to discuss this further is Fianna Fáil TD John Lahart, journalist Michael O'Regan. Professor of Health Systems at DCU, Anthony Staines, GP, Dr. Brendan O'Shea, and down the line is Chairwoman of Care Champions, an advocacy group that offers support to those who have faced issues with nursing homes, Magella, BT. You're all very welcome to the programme. Michael, I'm going to come to you first because I am conscious that for a lot of people, they hear the word COVID and they just want to cover their ears, but an Inquiry like this, a review, call it what you may, it is important because if you think back, and sometimes we forget to, you know, what was it, four or five years ago, this was an extraordinary period of time in people's lives with extraordinary restrictions put on the way we live our
3: lives. Absolutely. And uh, I think that while some people might say, oh, God, not COVID again, uh, this is necessary. Now, the Taoiseach has has said that uh, he wants the inquiry to be a search for the truth and not a witch hunt. And I think people will agree with, uh, agree with him in that. It's to be set up probably within the next three months. The terms of reference uh, have to be agreed by the Cabinet. It could last, it's estimated, up to anything like 18 months. Now, it's a significant year politically, because you have the European and local elections and the possibility of a general election in the autumn. And if it doesn't happen in the autumn, the certainty of uh, a election, general election in the spring of uh, next year. So the political temperature will be rising anyway. Now, I think what people will inevitably say, will it turn out to be like the UK inquiry? I don't think so. And let's uh, just
1: remind people, in the UK, yeah. we have had these pretty explosive WhatsApp messages. Yeah. We've had testimony from Boris Johnson himself, from Rishi Sunak, from um, advisors within Cabinet that spoke about a toxic environment. I mean, it, it was a mess, and it has, been, it has been political mudslinging over there for the last number of weeks. But you could say in some ways, <clears> there's nothing we don't know about how COVID was dealt with in the UK after it. We're not going to get that here.
3: I, I don't think... I, I think the government on unba, uh, balance handled it well. Now, that doesn't mean that everything uh, that was done was the right thing to do at the right time. That's what an inquiry has to uh, show. But there weren't any wine parties in government buildings, you know.
1: So uh, no text messages between Leo Varadkar uh, uh, and Tony Hullohan. We're abso- not expecting uh, those. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And you, in the UK inquiry, you had this bizarre situation where both uh, the Prime Minister at the time, Boris Johnson, and the current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said that they had lost their WhatsApp messages. Now, this is echoes of the Watergate scandal uh, in the United States where you had uh, the tapes from the White House, critical tapes which implicated Nixon in the cover-up, suddenly and inexplicably, uh, quote, erroneously, unquote, erased. It led eventually, of course, to the resignation of Nixon. And the British government clearly was dysfunctional during COVID. You had, for instance... The astonishing remark by Dominic Cummings, a strange man, uh, Johnson's chief advisor, where he said at one stage, he described the Prime Minister as careering around on WhatsApp, as usual, creating chaos and undermining everybody. Now, you're not going to have any senior official from the government uh, saying anything remotely like that about Leo Varadkar or Mihal Martin.
1: Because, by and large, you felt we, we dealt with it pretty well. I think well. we did,
3: and I think, in retrospect, uh, you know, uh, the state of the nation addresses by Mihal Martin and Leo Varadkar were quite good mm-hmm. and quite balanced and, I think, quite effective.
1: OK, so what's the purpose, then, of this inquiry, John Hart? What do we need to find out? What do we need to learn?
4: Um, I think it's really important. There was a book written about the Spanish flu by Ida Milne, and one of the things she said was that you had a society that was so worn out by the, the First World War, by the period of revolution, that the last thing they wanted to do was talk about the Spanish flu, and so the state missed a huge opportunity to learn really significant lessons, and it was kind of lost in the in the public mind and lost in folklore as a result of that, and you were quite right when you said, you know, most people would put their hands to their ears and um, Facebook, uh, when they hear COVID, Facebook occasionally throws up, you know, these photographic memories. I forgot, for example, that the doll, and I do forget um, that the doll spent a lot of time in the convention center. Mm-hmm. Um, because it feels like it was a different era. Building on what Ida Milne has said, we need to look back to see what we did right. And I think we got a lot right. Um, what, as Sam McConkey said on the radio today, what were the real resiliences What were the weaknesses? What, you know, didn't go right? Um, I think of things like, and I know you have a guest here, there wasn't a public representative uh, not impacted by stories Mm. from week to week. The ones that come to my mind, I'm not uh, prioritising them, but they were towards the end was, you know, the spouses who couldn't attend uh, the labour of their partner. Um, And very often, and we kept pushing it, pushing it, very often we didn't get satisfactory answers to that. Um, So we need to see, you know, what we did well but I think it ought to be fact-based. Um, I think yeah, because uh, uh, Leo Pratt- that kind of apportion blame, really, they get mired down in lawyers and mired down in really not kind of finding solutions. So he what we has want said, Leo Fradker Pratt- Pratt- yeah.
1: said, look, we we need to get the terms of reference of this right. We don't want it to stray into all sorts of things, was what he said, like they did in the UK. So what sorts of things do we not want to stray into?
4: Well, I think... The terms of reference should set out very, very clearly from the start that this, these are the objectives of this inquiry. And the objectives are to leave us in a better place the next pandemic or the next crisis we face. And I always bear in mind, I was, I'm a member of the Oireachtas Health Committee and I was a member of the COVID Health Committee in the interregnum period between government. Um, and we had lots of different witnesses in. Let's not forget, you know, the cyber attack on the HSE caused the HSE far more problems than COVID did and caused the country's health system far more problems and posed a much more significant problem and challenge to the health system, actually, than COVID did.
1: Michel Martin, yourself, you just said it there, Leo, Vratkar, when they've been in here last year, we've asked them about the COVID inquiry. They're sort of a pains point out this can't be a witch hunt, this isn't really about individuals. Why? Why are they so afraid, it would seem, to, to <clears> talk <throat> about accountability and responsibility? I
4: don't think they are. There's a of a lot of uh, stuff on the public record already through uh, books that were uh, written by colleagues of yourself, Michael, good journalists, really good books. Colleagues of ours here, Richard And, and Chambers. colleagues of yours, yes. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they, they really, um, I won't say they exposed, but they dealt with a lot of the background pieces. We did have a bit of an expose of... of uh, text messages um, between different players in it as well. Um, so there will be a little bit of colour, but I think what everybody wants to, uh, to do is build on what we did really well. There's going to be challenges like this down the road. How do we leave ourselves much better placed? OK, to with
1: that? so one of the big questions then, Anthony, is how is this inquiry going to play out? You think it needs to be public. You mean full public inquiry?
5: I think it needs to be public, but I think it would be a very good idea to have a private arm where people could recount their own stories and be listened to. That worked well for the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse, and I think that could be a model for here. But the focus has to be laser-focused on being ready. We weren't ready for this pandemic. Neither was anyone else in Europe. The last serious pandemic was 1969, That's a long time ago. There's nobody still working who remembers that. But the last pandemic to hit Europe was a long time ago. The odds are that we're going to get more pandemics faster. So I don't think it's going to be 40 years before we have another pandemic. Hopefully it will be more than a couple of years. But I don't, nobody knows, is the truth. So we have to figure out a mechanism for dealing with this. Getting on top of it. And as Simon Harris said, learning what we did that worked.
1: So what do you feel we did that did work and then didn't work?
5: What we did that worked was very rapid responses, very rapid rollout of vaccination, <clears throat> open communication, telling people what was going on. That all worked. It worked well. What didn't work was we nursing homes were not sufficiently well-minded. And that's a serious mistake that I certainly... I. I made and other people made. The idea that COVID was not spread in schools was wrong. <laughs> the idea that COVID was spread by hand contact was wrong. COVID is spread through the air, hence filtration masks. We've got, really got to have mechanisms for getting on top of that. Whatever it comes next time, it will be different. And we've also got to have a mechanism for getting on top of the long-term effects of this virus, because that's something none of us expected. You know, this was obviously a nasty virus, but it causes long-term effects in a high proportion of people, which nobody knew in, at the beginning of 2020. We have to deal with that.
1: OK, I just want to go to uh, Magella there, because we mentioned, Anthony mentioned care homes as being one of the areas that will have to be looked at in this inquiry. And we were saying at the beginning of the pr- programme, Magella, that, you know, for many of us, you put your hands in your ears when you think of COVID and you don't want to go back there and you do want to be reminded. But for some of the families that you represent, they haven't been able to move on, have they? They haven't been able to leave COVID behind.
0: No, yeah. so, you
6: know, we often hear people referring to the fact that they can't remember particular uh, particular times in COVID. But for our families, they're frozen in time, you know, um, and they're frozen in grief. And an awful lot of that, you know, is because families are denied answers. They're denied uh, freedom of information particularly in private nursing homes because they don't fall under the Freedom of Information Act Um, so our families don't know in many cases what happened to their loved ones our family members in wave three died the very same as they died in wave one often alone not having seen their loved ones uh, for weeks or months on end and you know um, and we can talk. you know I always hear the word "witch hunt" when um, when I'm ever brought into an interview. Our families are not out looking for a witch hunt. We're out looking for a human rights um, representation of what occurred in care settings, uh, particularly for those with for older people, and you know, similar in hospitals and in uh, all residential care settings. But we believe, you know. the public inquiry must have a human rights expert, the same as, you know, be it a medical expert or um, a legal expert or whoever else is there. Residents, particularly in nursing homes, uh, we believe were seen as, they um, so were seen through a medical lens. They weren't seen as human beings with emotions, they weren't seen as human, being, human beings with, um, you know, with desires and been able to make choices. So, like, to give a very clear example, in wave three, Uh, of the pandemic, we had people still being denied window visits, but yet in the summer of 2020, across different countries in Europe, they they have put in place um, a visitor where a family member could come in like a partner in care. In Northern Ireland, in November, 2020, The Northern Ireland Executive endorsed a care partner, um, a care partner system, which basically meant that two family members in rotation would be seen as a complete partner in care at all times in a care setting, and that took huge pressure off care staff. You know, at a time where we're hearing that there was no staff in care homes, our family members wanted to go in. We wanted to help our loved ones. Able to. Uh,
1: And I know you have been talking about this and your organisation has been talking about this and calling for this inquiry for some time. And you say the members that you represent are frozen in time. Have they been contacted by this inquiry?
6: No, Uh, we have on numerous occasions. We always engage with um, uh, with government, um, you know, not very successfully. But we always ask because we believe that we have the lived experience of policies which failed our older people, and we believe this is not just an issue for those who were impacted during COVID. You know, we're all getting older, and we're going into a system that has very re- little regulation. So, like, we have been contacting government, and we've we've put in submissions to the Health Committee of what we believe needs to happen in the reform of care so that nobody else will ever suffer the way my family and other families have continued to suffer as a consequence of what we believe are poor decisions that occurred during COVID.
1: All right, let me just go back to uh, Brendan O'Shea and I'm going to let you to come in on that too, um, John Lahard. I, I'm just, when I hear Majella, and I know the people that she represents who want answers mm. about what happened in specific nursing homes. <clears throat> they want the chain of command. They want to know the, I suppose, correspondence between the nursing home and the HSC and what happened to their loved ones. Are they going to get that level of detail in a report like this?
7: Uh, I don't have an answer to that question. Uh, It's clearly important. And I have to say, uh, I think all of us in just reflecting on this, it's actually shocking to bring ourselves right back into that space. An important part of recovering from it is being able to forget it and to move on. But clearly there are thousands of households uh, where there's a deep level of hurt uh, in terms of what actually happened. Uh, So it's really important that this inquiry happens. As a GP, I think we would all say that in general practice. It's very important that it happens in a timely manner. If it goes to 18 months, and then if we're sitting around for another couple of months before it's actually released, and then if there are recommendations, and then if it takes several more years for those recommendations to be acted on, that's not good enough for Ireland in 2024. And isn't
1: there a difficulty and, and and I suppose, a a possibility that that will happen here? I mean, we're already four years into this. We're talking, I think, initially, Leo Varadkar said 12 months, but he said it could go to 18 months. And he did also say when these things happen, you can't really control the the timeline.
7: I'm afraid there's absolutely a possibility that it might string out and happen like that. And I think it's important for all of us to get together and make sure that it doesn't happen like that. And that the importance of the inquiry is not a witch hunt. It's not to punish. It's to understand what happened. It's particularly to understand what we did right. And what do we need to do differently? And what do we need to do in order to be prepared for the next one, which inevitably will happen? Uh, so it's a very important inquiry and hopefully that we can actually keep the impetus and the urgency and, and have it delivered in a timely manner and act on the recommendations. Yeah,
1: because you say that there were positives that came out. Huge of them, positives. For, for, particularly yeah. for GP practice and how you run your <clears throat> business.
7: Well, it sounds very wrong to say that we had a good pandemic because it was awful. Uh, but things actually changed during the pandemic Uh, And in certain respects, I don't think practice is ever going to go quite back to the way it was. For years, we had been hounding uh, the powers that be. Could we have electronic prescribing? Could we have electronic certification? Mm -hmm. Suddenly on a Tuesday in April 2020, it just switched on. Um, so, So that was good. Um, uh, we, everybody worked hard um, uh, and with success and I think that that's an important thing to actually understand that I think any of us who were practising in Ireland looked across the Irish Sea and thought boy I'm glad I'm not trying to practice medicine in the UK the United States was even worse um, in Ireland we had the rollout of immunisation ahead of everybody else practically in Europe we got lots of things right.
1: OK, John Hart. I just want to go back to one of the things uh, that Magella said, that, you know, her organisation and those who lost family members and don't feel they can move on from COVID, that they have tried to, get, to reach out to get answers for a long time and they effectively have been ignored by government. Why?
4: Um, well, I don't think there's anything, you know, we as public representatives of the government should fear about this if it's structured properly. And as Anthony said, you know, I'm completely open-minded about uh, public private mixture of both. I like the idea, and I suspect people who may have harrowing stories to tell may opt sometimes to tell those stories in private once they are uh, reflected in the, the, the publishing, publishing final, uh, final report uh, of the inquiry. In terms of not being consulted, I just wonder, because I, I understand that the government is carrying out a scoping inquiry, which I imagine is to see, okay, what do we cover here? They, again, from what I uh, uh, can glean, there will be a modular approach. There will possibly be a judge with some experts, so there'll be a structure to this, and it will be broken into different pieces. But will, will, those, also, will
1: those families get the answers? You know, will they get the sort of level of detail? I wonder, in terms of what happened in, let's say, for example, individual care homes.
4: Uh, Unlikely. I, well, I think we should try and get as close to that as possible. But also bear in mind, I don't want to belittle anybody's pain. Everybody I know. And every family I know uh, experienced a death, Okay, Um, We had very few excess, no excess deaths in Ireland. Um, And there's one group, I've always said, if I was talking about this on television, who I'd like to to pay huge tribute to, who were never mentioned. I mean, we do mention, and rightly so, nurses, GPs, doctors, teachers, all of those, police, the guards, everybody, people in the stores. Undertakers Mm. have never, ever been mentioned. And you know what? They did their job. Uh, quietly, with incredible dignity mm-hmm. and brought families through an incredibly harrowing uh, period in their lives without any kind of fuss or without any kind of fanfare. And uh, their group that i And they sure should be active.
1: recognised. Yeah. Do you think, Michael, that this could potentially make uncomfortable reading for members of NEFET and for politicians?
3: It has that potential. There's no doubt about it because, uh, you know, you can't c- control something like that, this... And particularly, it's politically sensitive in an election year. Um, This is the government that, you know, is coming to the end of its term. It oversaw COVID. It's not a new government, uh, you know, uh, in the first, we'll say, year of its existence and that. So this, you know, there will be judgments on the government inevitably. Because it's Uh,
1: a lot more, uh, isn't it, than just the health service. I mean, they do have to look at the impact, I suppose, on closing down so much of the health service. Absolutely. On closing schools, on shuttering businesses, on closing down the construction sector. All of those aspects need to be included in this, don't they? Absolutely.
3: And the trauma uh, of people had to endure. And the um, critical will be the terms of reference. Also critical will be the chairperson and the panel, if there is a panel, that will oversee this. And also, I agree, actually, that... It's not something that should go on and on and on, as we've seen, we'll say, with tribunals in the past. Mm. Uh, People will want it, uh, obviously, to hear uh, what has to be said, but they will want it concluded in a reasonable length of time. They will want to see the conclusions and then the recommendations implemented.
7: Yeah,
1: who should be on the panel, Anthony?
3: I think you're going to need a fairly substantial range
5: of people with expertise in various areas in the panel. You're certainly going to need people who understand about pandemic control, but you're going to need economists, you're going to need psychologists, you're going to need human rights people. Were those voices
1: lacking, do you think, in in decision-making during the pandemic?
5: Possibly, yes. I I think the economists got a substantial shot at it, but uh, I think one of the things Nefit didn't do is they didn't do risk assessments on their various policies. And there, there are procedures for doing rapid risk assessments, which are routinely used in this sector. And I'm glad to hear it's a modular inquiry, but it's going to be really important that a module is is done and reported because parts of this could take a very long time. And giving a fair hearing to the families, that's a process that could take a very substantial period of time. And I think it would be a terrible mistake to hold everything else in the reports until that process was finished. Because either you're putting huge time pressure on it or, you, you know, you never get anywhere with it. Or it'll so, be like the
1: bank inquiry, the time it's published, we've all really left yeah. that period of time it, of our
5: doing life it, behind. Doing it module by module by module, providing a report to the modules, that's been done for other inquiries in other countries, and it works well.
1: Yeah, I'm just very conscious, I suppose, of one of the recommendations that I will expect to come out of this report, Brendan, and I'm, I'm no medical expert, but it will look at ICU capacity in this country because it was <laughs> one of the reasons that we had such severe lockdowns as we had a shortage of ICU capacity. We don't need a recommendation or report in this country mm. to tell us that that shortage was in existence. We knew that mm. well in advance of COVID ever coming into the country. So I suppose I'm being sceptical and wondering... Release recommendations go anywhere?
7: Well, that's down to everybody and our collective responsibility and our collective interest. Mm. Um, I think a really critical input into this um, and it's very important that families and patients are represented in this, not as participants, but in terms of being involved in the expert panel overseeing this.
0: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist,
8: Mm. Uh, I think
7: that's a, a really important way to get the right energy and the right focus on it. Um, that's important.
1: Okay, I just want to ask you another thing while I have you here as we're talking about, you know, care capacity within our hospitals. We've seen soaring rates of <clears throat> flu and actually of COVID again. What impact is that having on our hospitals?
7: Well, surely we can't and be, on GP practices. Surely we can't be remotely surprised. This has happened every single winter back to 1066. Um it's utterly predictable. Um, I suppose it seems scarier um, after the pandemic and the experience we've all been through. It also seems scarier, whereas before, in previous decades, it was just another bad winter of bugs. Now we've got them all named and lined up and they populate our imagination. Uh, It's RSV is is the latest latest thing. Uh, It's happening. It was curious to see that there wasn't a major winter initiative heading into this winter. Uh, We could be cynical about it, that they, they were all part of heading into the winter and glad to see that we didn't have one. Um, but it is the way it is, and uh, looking at it from general practice, you have to say that people are brilliant with it, uh, that parents are working very hard. An awful lot of people are doing the right thing. We've gotten better at understanding in relation to antibiotics, uh, but there are still margins where we can improve things.
1: OK, was there cynicism there, John Le Hart? We didn't have the big, as he says, the big initiative, the big uh, plan, because ultimately it hasn't really had any huge notable impact for the last couple of years.
4: Well, one of the things the Minister introduced this year was an all year round approach to urgent and emergency care as opposed to just kind of approaching that in the in the winter period.
1: And do you think it's working?
4: Well, uh, in the, certainly the stats that we have uh, around the particular specific Christmas period, there was an 80% drop in those people uh, who were on trolleys. Dr Colin Henry uh, today, I think, also talked about, you know, there's a reduction, could be more, there's a reduction. Um, but you have all that pressure coming on. I think the next two weeks are the peak piece and there is the post-peak, which can, which obviously can go on. People can still avail of vaccinations. That's uh, okay. an important piece. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's obviously the most pressured time of the year for the, for the health service. But I think they're coping better this year than last year in the stats so far seem to bear that out.
1: Okay, and I'm sure we'll discuss that in a lot more detail over the next fortnight. We're going to have to leave that discussion there for now. My thanks to John, Michael, to Anthony Brendan, and to Magella. Coming up, it's the environmentally friendly option, we're told, but are electric vehicles cut out for long journeys and the lack of infrastructure on Irish roads? Two leading Irish journalists are going to debate. of electric vehicles rocketed by 45% in 2023 despite some concerns over car batteries and the availability of charging points by some. Well, joining us to debate whether EVs are a prudent investment from the Irish Independent is technology editor Adrian Weckler and motoring editor Geraldine Herbert. You're both very welcome to the programme. Adrian, yep. you've wanted to drive an electric car for a long time and last year decided to shell out the money. I'm, I'm jumping in and buying my electric car. Result?
8: Result, I bought it. <laughs> I, I bought it. Um, what for, did you buy? I bought a Volkswagen ID3, the first new car I ever bought, only because at the time they're actually cheaper to buy than secondhand versions of the same car. You could be roughly the same price at the time for about an 18 month old version of the same car. So I've been used to driving electric cars for almost a decade. In the early years, I would have driven the Nissan Leaf uh, for a while, reviewed a few cars after that. So I went into it with my eyes open, had always wanted to drive electric, fundamentally believe in the shift from petrol and diesel to electric. We, We all pretty much need to do that. There have been challenges. There have been challenges. I knew there would be, but there definitely have been challenges. OK, I, let's yeah. talk
1: about, I suppose, the first one. Like, And we all know, for, for many of us, buying a car, particularly buying a new car, it's a pretty significant yep. financial outlay. And we know that new cars you know, lose money as soon as you drive them off the forecourt. But the depreciation has shocked you.
8: Well, yes, it, it did in my case. Now, this is, let me preface this by saying, this is an unbelievably first world problem. But... When I bought within, I'd say, seven or eight months, certainly in the last uh, two months, many of, the, many of the main electric car brands in Ireland have slashed their price. So the car that I bought, for example, came down by uh, around six or 7,000 euro. So you just and
1: lost that value really overnight.
8: In addition to the normal depreciation value. So were I to change, say I wanted to buy a plug-in hybrid now, for argument's sake, I'm not going to, but if I did want to, the, the gap that I would have to make up to do that in depreciation would be double the normal depreciation gap. Now, ironically, that could mean that you won't see that kind of a price drop again. But for those who bought last year, like I did, Tesla, uh, Nissan, uh, Volkswagen, they've seen a considerable drop in the value of their car.
1: Do electric cars in general, Geraldine, depreciate quicker than petrol or diesel cars?
9: No, I think what we're seeing in the market at the moment, and you were just you bought unfortunately at a time when we had used car prices were at an exceptionally high price. There was a very long wait for new cars. That was having a big impact on car prices. At the same time, and then at the other end, there were various different things that happened in China. Tesla decided to, in order to grow their market share in China, to cut their prices. They then made the decision to globally do that. That put huge um, pressure on European car manufacturers to do the same. And then we had the entrance of Chinese car makers coming into the market, producing very well specced and very well-priced cars and the whole thing together has put enormous pressure on the European car market. So Adrian was really unlucky. It was lucky. Now the other thing, that's where we are now. The other thing I would say about depreciation is no car is an investment. As you point out, the minute you drive it off the forecourt, you've lost a huge amount of money. But the depreciation, the biggest chunk really is in the first three years. So that's why nobody sells a car after the first year. And to view depreciation in just terms of the first year is to not see the full picture. Over those three years, It will depreciate. But the thing you have to consider is that... um, Sorry, I just lost my train of thought there for one second. OK, in terms of the depreciation, the majority of people buying electric cars in Ireland are buying them on PCPs. With a PCP, and Volkswagen in particular, because they sell the best-selling electric car, and about 75% of those cars are sold on PCPs. With a PCP, the dealer will say to you, right your car is worth this now, it'll be worth this at the end of the three years and this is what you're going to pay every month. So you leave the dealership, you drive off with your brand new car, knowing exactly what your car is going to be worth at the end of the three years. Do they depreciate more? No, there are no surprises, there are no shocks, there are no nothing. You know exactly, and that price is guaranteed at the end. So there is no reason to believe... But let's just say
1: you didn't do PCP. Does an electric car depreciate quicker than a petrol car over that three-year period? No. Or at um, a higher rate?
9: No, and there is, there's no reason to believe that if you buy now, that in three years' time, it's going to. What has happened in the market, what I'm trying to explain, is that it has been there's been a number of factors that have happened and there's been a lot of price reductions and artificial price increases at the beginning of that. So it was just unfortunate timing, but you cannot draw conclusions from depreciation for one year on what will happen in three years' time. And the dealership that you're buying on a PCP, for example, they're predicting what that value will be in three years' time, and they are guaranteeing that. So there is a lot of guarantee and a lot of certainty in the market in that sense.
1: OK, so you got unlucky. Do you accept that, Adrian, oh, in terms yeah. of, of the factors that Geraldine pointed out? Oh, I
8: do, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, a friend of mine bought a Tesla Model 3. Two weeks later, the price came down by, I think, €7,000. Uh, so... Look, that happens. This is a, just once again. This is I'm not. This is a very small violin that you're going to play for <laughs> uh, for me on this.
1: Yeah, but but, but people In, out there, yeah. and it is the time of year when people are considering perhaps a new yeah. car, and a lot of people want to shift to electric. And they to, to me, to say, is the, the, is the, the right fallen price that
8: I have suffered, and that fair few people have suffered is nowhere near the biggest challenge or issue with changing to electric. Sorry,
9: Aidan, can I just make one yeah. point there? But you haven't suffered a price loss only unless you went in to trade it in now. And nobody buys a new car and trades it in within a year.
8: If I were to go and buy, say, a plug-in hybrid or a hybrid car, if, if I decided that...
9: But that's a very unusual thing for a new car buyer to decide at the end of the year, I'm going to trade in a car. And in far- fairness, to make generalisations yeah. about the electric car market, you have to look at, the, in all new car markets, people hold on to cars for three years. So you cannot talk about depreciation based on a year. If you do that, you are an outlier in three years' time. If we take Geraldine's down,
8: in three years' time, if I were to trade in against a hybrid, for example, a plug-in hybrid, it's almost certain that I will have lost a lot more value because I bought electric. Now, I'm willing to take that because I do believe in driving electric. Mm. But as I said, that's not actually the biggest problem with changing to electric.
1: Okay, your big problem recently was an experience with range. Tell me what happened.
8: So... (laughs) The thing that they generally don't tell you when you move to electric, you have to do your own research and you're well advised to do your own research. They don't tell you, for example, in general, in the winter, your range can fall by up to half. So I drove here in the M50, uh, for example, tonight. Now, because it's cold outside, because it's winter outside, the range that I would have been getting would have been just a little over half of what the normal over the average year range is. So. And it's a
1: pretty cold country, Ireland.
8: <laughs> well, it's average temperature about 10 to 11 degrees. But the, in cold, there, there are a lot of factors that will affect your range with an electric car. One is the weather. Okay, If it gets cold, if you put the heater on, if you've got somebody else uh, sitting in the car with you, if you go over a certain speed, for example. Now, these are all things I was aware of, by the way. But it is quite amazing how many people don't know that and get a nasty shock. And it's quite amazing that there isn't a system in place, a consumer, uh, a regulatory practice in Ireland, which obliges some kind of basic understanding or information about this. You have to go hunting for it yourself. And I think it's basic, it's fundamentally disingenuous.
1: Uh, Geraldine, basically the electric car companies are being a little disingenuous with people when they tell you the range of a new car, they don't actually tell you that it's dependent on loads of factors, like Adrian says, who's in the car with you? Have you the heater on? And is it cold outside tonight?
9: Okay, the WLTP figure is based on a, a mix of roads. So if you go This is the range figure for this people. Is the range figure. It's also the fuel consumption figure for an ice or for a nice car, a petrol or diesel car. So if you go in an urban area, the chances are you're going to exceed that range. If you are on the motorway, you are you're not going to achieve it. Having said that, having driven a huge number of electric cars, some of them are Closer, The real world range is far closer to the, the predicted range or the WLTP range than others. So that does vary from, from, um, from car to car. The only thing I would say, the WLTP... Whether it's the fuel consumption on a, on a petrol or diesel car, or it's the range on an electric car, is not what you're going to achieve. That's not what it's designed to do. It's designed as a comparison tool, so it allows you to compare one car to another. That's actually what it's designed to but, do. But don't for people simple, sort of
1: look at that though, Geraldine Fairly. No, people look the at that and think, "Oh, that's the range of the car." I'm somebody who lives in Donegal. I want to and go and need from, to from Dublin to
8: Cork. Okay, I want to go from Dublin to Cork. Okay. For the simple reason,
9: it. exactly as as, um, as Adrian is saying, the actual fuel consumption in a, in a petrol car or in an electric car. The electric range is based on how many people are in the car, the weather conditions, the driving conditions, how aggressively you drive, how your speed and all of those things. So in, in an ICE car, it also matters, but we don't notice it because we're on the motorway and we can zip off and we can refuel in two seconds. If you take somewhere like Norway, right, they'd buy the same ICE car or the, the same electric cars with the same range, problems with the same WLTP figures and yet 80% of their new cars are electric and that's because they made a decision when they started off in terms of promoting electric cars they would build the infrastructure first and then they would sell the cars. But I so the point so the Adrian's making is we're not at that point no, their in Ireland infrastructure and so maybe consumers always, don't have enough information all, here. No but their infrastructure is always ahead of the number of cars on the road. Our yeah. problem is we're playing catch-up. When we should have invested in the infrastructure was in 2019 when we made our ambitious mm. plans. Our electric cars would be far more usable. But but what Adrian is essentially highlighting is the problem, is the infrastructure, yeah. not the cost the. Is it the infrastructure so, though? No,
8: no, it is. So the range and infrastructure are the two issues. So the fact that my car, which has an advertised range of 420 kilometers, cannot do Dublin to Cork on the motorway, which is 260 kilometers, unless I speed unless I take the speed right down and other mitigating measures. This happened to me last week, okay? Unless I take the speed right down. That wouldn't be a problem if we had more than a handful of high-speed chargers. So the, the road that I do most is Dublin to Ballonats, 236 uh, kilometers. There's one high-speed charger. Actually, there's more than one now because the Tesla chargers have opened mm-hmm. up in Enfield. But up for a long time, one high-speed charger. Okay, but just okay? to be
1: clear, it didn't do the range that you but think it should be. No, but Adrian's it, experience it can, in one do.
8: car. What
9: it, I'm saying so is... Is it, is it Adrian's oh, driving in that car? It, or is it a particular no. car? It, no, 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 I mean, Adrian obviously has driven a lot of electric cars He knows how to get the maximum out of the range. But Adrian could drive a car with the exact same range, a different car, and get that. What I'm saying is it does vary from car to car, and it is unfair to take one example and say that is indicative of all electric cars. I have driven to Cork without any problem, going either from Dublin or going from where I live in Nace and not had an issue and done it many times in an electric car. So it is quite possible to do. It wasn't possible for Adrian in his ID3, but that's not to say it's not possible for him to achieve that in but, another but electric some, car. But the so point is, it sometimes is,
8: and this is the point we're trying to get across, it sometimes is possible to do Dublin to Cork in my ID3 in the summertime, but not in the wintertime. It, like, the, the the road I do most from Dublin to North Mayo, which is you know, uh, 200, uh, to, 260 kilometres. I can do that all day long in the summertime on about 85% of battery. In the wintertime, I have to stop. Now, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. We, you you know that when people like myself and Geraldine know that when we go into buying... Do
9: other car. people, though, buying cars know do. that, Geraldine? I actually think they do. I think car buyers are, are probably more... Savvy about these things than they ever have been, because there's a wealth of information out there, and they do avail of it. The AA have produced some great videos about, you know, 120 kilometres versus 100 um, 100 in terms of your range. And Derek Riley and Nevo has great real world examples of driving. So there's huge amounts of information, and I find when people come, so people aren't being being duped or being sold No, I literally here. get emails on a daily basis from people. They could be not necessarily buying electric, but considering things. And they are so well up on these things. So I don't believe for a second they are. And I do think, you know, it is not in the interest of car dealers to say to you, oh, you'll get 400 kilometres if you're not going to, because you're not going to come back to them. So it, you agree, it works Adrian? for nobody, that sort of... I,
8: I can't really fully agree with that. I, I agree with the gist of what Geraldine is saying, but... Um, I think that uh, car dealers and the car industry in general, if there is not uh, regulatory oversight on how they sell their cars uh, when it comes to ranges, I think they will sell the cars. And but I they don't, don't think...
9: have any control over that. The WLTP is well, not by the car industry. They could tell you could the, the truth. They the be honest. They,
8: they could put on their websites, the range is 420. By the way, in the wintertime you might only get 270 pounds.
9: A lot of them do. And I mean, yeah. Skoda have a great tool where you can actually put in the weather, the whatever the amount you have in the car, the whole thing. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, range comes down to a huge number of factors. Having four kids in the car, three kids in the car, a That's roof true. rack, stuff in the boot. So it's you cannot generalise based on one journey in one car. It's a lot of things for people to take on board though, isn't it? It's just not as
1: straightforward perhaps, but I think, as the industry the has same, sold it to be we, in Geraldine. But
9: fuel consumption is exactly the same, but we don't notice because we have the ability to to literally refuel anywhere in minutes. So it does come down to the fact that if the charging infrastructure was ahead of the game and was ahead of the numbers, we wouldn't be having this discussion. What would massively
8: help and maybe solve it is if government ministers and senior policy makers actually drove electric cars, I think you'd pretty soon see more public infrastructure out there. Would you do it again? Yes, I'm committed to driving electric. The fact that I keep giving out about the range and about the crap uh, public infrastructure is is me is is an inverted love letter to electric cars. I want to keep driving electric cars. Okay,
1: just get a bit better at yep. the infrastructure. All right, Geraldine uh, Herbert and Adrian Weckler, Thank you both for coming into us. Uh, after the break, Oscar Pistorius out on parole after serving half of his thirteen-year sentence. We'll bring you the very latest. The trial that gripped the world, and tomorrow, South African Paralympic sprinter Oscar Pistorius will be released on parole from prison after serving half of a 13 year sentence for a murder of his then-girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp. I'm joined now live from Pretoria in South Africa by news correspondent Ollie Barrett for more on this. Ollie uh, good to speak to you, as always. I think many of us will remember the details of this trial, will remember the footage, the live footage coming from the trial and Oscar Pistorius himself giving evidence. But remind people who perhaps are forgotten of the details of this case, if you can.
2: Well, Kira, it was Valentine's Day 2013 that uh, Oscar Pistorius shot and killed Riva Steenkamp, his girlfriend, uh, through the bathroom door at his property here in Pretoria. He claimed at the time, and is still claiming as far as we know, that he thought that she was an intruder. But as you say, there was that incredibly high-profile trial with those pictures beamed around the world as he and others gave evidence in court. He was initially convicted of culpable homicide, which is something akin to manslaughter in many other jurisdictions around the world, but after a tussle between various courts and lawyers here in South Africa, that was changed to a conviction for murder with that 13-year sentence to go with it. And as you say, he has now served over half of that 13-year sentence, and it's that sentence that we now see him released under those parole conditions.
1: What is the justification, I suppose, for his early release, Ollie, and what will those parole conditions be?
2: South African authorities say that this is following the exact procedure that they would always follow for any criminal in the judicial system here in South Africa for any criminal who served over half their sentence in a case like this and in other cases as well. They say that there is nothing unusual about the release uh, on parole at a time like this during a sentence like this. Um, uh, Those parole conditions will include Oscar Pistorius having to live at a designated address here in Pretoria, not far from where I am, in a uh, suburb of the city, which is called Waterkloof. He'll stay with his uncle. He'll have to be at that property for a number of designated hours per day. He will not be allowed to drink alcohol. He will not be allowed to give media interviews. If he wanted to take up any employment opportunities, he would have to talk to his parole official to get all of that okayed. We also understand that he will have to take part in various programs related to gender-based violence and anger management, things like that. In terms of how The actual day turns out, because we are into Friday now here in South Africa. It's uh, around 1 a.m. in the morning. Uh, Officials here have only said that he will be released at some point on Friday. They've also said that people who are camped out and journalists are camped out at the prison uh, where he's been serving his time recently, they say they will not see pictures of Oscar Pistorius today, leading to speculation about exactly what that means about the nature and the timing of his release on Friday. But once he has been released from prison, we do expect him to make his way to his uncle's house in that suburb of Pretoria, Waterkloof, not far from where I am now, to serve out the remaining period of his sentence. So he will be under those parole conditions until the end of 2029.
1: We know, uh, Ali, that South Africa has some of the highest rates of gender-based violence in the world and we know how high profile this case was and indeed how high profile he was. Uh, What are those advocacy groups saying and what are Rivas Steenkamp's own family saying about his early release?
2: That's absolutely right. Uh, You have to remember that at the time of the killing of Rivas Dienkamp, Oscar Pistorius had come off the back of the London Olympics in which he'd competed alongside other non-disabled athletes. He brought home a hall of uh, medals in the Paralympics in London as well and in Beijing before that. And that did shine a huge spotlight on the issue of gender-based violence here in South Africa. And so there are campaigners here in South Africa today who are saying Oscar Pistorius should not be being released early. It sends the wrong message. Now, there are others who say that in a way it can shine a light on the progress that has been made in this country on gender-based violence, but they also say that it also shines a light on how much further there is to go on these issues, and, and that's one of the great areas of controversy around Oscar Pistorius's release. But as I say, officials insist, they absolutely insist, that they are following the normal procedures here, that he is not receiving any special treatment.
1: All right, we're going to leave that there for now. Oli, live in Pretoria thanks for speaking to us this evening well that is it from us here on the Tonight Show our programme as always is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also find us on Instagram and on TikTok tonight VMTV but from all the late team here good night and do take care